This is Ed Voices from Education International in Brussels. Global news, opinions and more from professional teachers, educators and advocates dedicated to policy education for every student. Hi to the audience for this podcast. I'm Martin Henry. I'm coordinator for research at Education International and I'm interviewing here John Bangs, who is somebody who's been involved in working with the OECD for over 20 years, formerly NUT England and Wales Head of Education and now, luckily for us, a senior consultant with Education International. So it's, it's great to have you here, John, because you have been involved with OECD for so long and know so many people there, we're really interested in talking to you about your perspective on the latest 2016 Education at a Glance. Yeah, Education at a Glance is uh, an annual publication by the OECD and it is a compilation of all the statistics on education that the OECD has. So it really is boiled down, as it were, to what every aspect of the statistics together means. And there's some fascinating findings in it this year, including funding levels, what's happening at HE, the nature of uh, teachers' salaries relative to the outside world, the impact of education, the impact, for instance, of education on children, for example, of, uh, of immigrants. There's a whole set of information in there, and it is always worth a good investigation. Okay, we're, we're going to open up today, John, with a, a discussion about gender, because I believe that the gender statistics in the education at a glance this year are probably not what we'd expect to see. Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing is that actually the amount of money that OECD countries spend on education seems to be flatlining. For example, last year's education at a glance said that uh, the OECD countries spent an average of 5.3% on education it's now down to 5.2 percent it's a marginal decrease but it shows that actually countries haven't really recovered from the great crash of 2008 when it comes to spending that said the information is is that the large number of oecd countries have tried to protect if not expand the amount of money that they spent on education but within that there are some real structural irregularities that certainly the teaching profession represented by EI would want to actually have fixed. And the first one, I think, is a really crucial one, is the massive inequalities in terms of gender. For example, the outside world shows that actually women, even though they do extremely well in tertiary education and are far exceeding the achievement of men on a whole set of areas outside education, women are actually falling behind in society in terms of their pay. Now, If you're in schools, you can't do much about that, except argue along with the rest of the population that that irregularity should be fixed. But the bizarre thing is that, of course, it's reflected within education itself. And teachers' pay, for example, is massively differentiated between women and men. And that comes over strongly. And it's done not particularly in terms of discriminatory rewards for the same job. In fact, that doesn't happen. But where it happens is in terms of promotion. There are far, far fewer women who achieve promotion and go right on to becoming principals or head teachers. The vast majority are men. And when you look at what the pay is in terms of being a principal or a head teacher, it's far greater. So the reality is, is that the glass ceiling 
that teachers hit, women teachers hit, even though they're the majority of those who teach in the teaching profession, is alive and well. The irony isn't lost on me that there's two men here discussing this, but we are also interested in the fact that we probably didn't expect the results to be as stark as they were. And certainly when you look at the results of, of boys and girls in schools, where girls are doing significantly better yeah. across a number of fronts, it was a shock to me to see that. And I know NASUWT has just published a very interesting report on this pay differential, which seems to work through the British system at any rate, and I'm sure it tracks on through the OECD. Sure, I think that's right. There, I just little caveat there actually in terms of where women are doing well they seem to be doing incredibly well right away across the piece with the exception for instance of engineering and science actually that's still very much a male preserve those two areas but apart from that the uh, the, the access for uh, women in higher education seems to have uh, opened up there is another structure of irregularity, and it may say something also about the nature of teachers and teaching there. For example, if you're teaching a class of four-year-olds, for example, you get about 20, 25% less than if you're teaching in a secondary school. So, for example, if you're teaching in a secondary school where there are more men than women, whereas in primary education there are far more women than men, the reality is is the fact that, in a sense, the lower years of education, the early years of education, are dominated by women teachers. Again, although technically you'll be earning the same amount as men, actually the reality is you're not earning as much because the career opportunities and the promotion ladder is not there. And they're moving closer. I found those statistics that you pulled out the report here fascinating too, that they're moving closer as you get up to upper secondary to the average pay for professionals who've done a similar qual, exactly but still right. actually don't get there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Martin. That's exactly the case. That is exactly what's happening. So it's a, a vertical inequality, and it's a horizontal inequality, and I think that comes over very clearly from EAG. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a really um, perfect little um, move into the world of higher education because we do see from the higher education statistics that we've been given that there are a whole lot of things that are particularly jumping out at us around that. If you'd like to comment a little on this area in particular, and I'll pick up on, on something they say where they talk about transferring debts to households. And, and there's a whole lot of questions that our higher ed specialists here uh, are asking questions about in terms of that correlation between tuition fees and loans and the result of student debt at graduation. The way that it's worked in Australia, Canada and the Netherlands, for example, is estimated that 10% of loans or more will not be repaid. Mm. There are a whole lot of households where that debt is, is becoming a significant burden on parents. And, and in fact, personal economies are being restructured around this very yeah, issue. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's worth thinking about higher education because about 40% of students go on to higher education. And as, as I said, actually, uh, uh, young women are certainly, and it's not only young women, actually, uh, uh, there are, there's, a, there's a continuing transfer of uh, uh, older people into higher education from work as well, but certainly not as much as those who go straight from schools. Uh, but there's, there's, a, there's a critical issue here. Higher education is not... A requirement. It's not part of the statutory education system in most countries. And that makes it vulnerable to far greater fluctuations in funding and far greater reliance on universities chasing those all-important commercial contracts. That's, that's a big deal. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing is that higher education is obviously extremely expensive uh, because you've got to cover a huge, range, a huge range of disciplines. It's actually tied to uh, a research evaluation co exercise, the funding is tied to a research evaluation exercise in most countries and you've got those twin imperatives for those universities to try and chase that money. And the commitments made by, and rightly, by many ministers over, the over time has been to say, well, if the OECD say that actually students who have tertiary education, students who have higher education, actually do very well, have much better health, much better sense of well-being in the rest of their lives, if you go into higher education, uh, as well as having the big economic benefit, that is a strong imperative. And promises have been made by ministers without funding. And so the solution to the funding gap in higher education is to shove the individual debt onto the backs of individual students. And there's a very striking couple of phrases in the Education at a Glance this year, and it says that most countries are switching the cost of higher education to individual households, and that more students are graduating with a diploma and debt. And so there are very few countries now that are actually funding maintenance grants and tuition fees. Now, the reality of that, and we in Education International recognise this, is that actually the people who really suffer are those from poor and disadvantaged backgrounds. But I have to say, there's also the issue of the squeeze middle. There are actually parents who may have regular, as it were, middle-class jobs, but they are hit really hard as well. And in a sense, crisis has not been resolved, and it means that the, uh, the funding and, and uh, opportunities are discriminatory in terms of an invidious impact if you want to actually stay in ed higher education. I'm delighted you brought up the class analysis, actually, John, because that was a specific <laughs> question that I did want to bring up, is that, that there are a whole lot of ways in which students from disadvantaged backgrounds, those with the lowest socioeconomic resources to draw on, are more at risk for all sorts of reasons around what happens to them when they get to higher education. Um, are you able to comment on those figures at all? Yeah, I mean, I, there was a scheme in the UK which has now been discontinued, which I thoroughly support, which is actually that all young people who go for higher education from poor backgrounds are entitled to a basic minimum in terms of maintenance, their support. It's an incentive. It doesn't cover everything, but the amount of money that there was actually was a genuine, attractive opportunity and incentive to individual students to actually do it. And I would say that the current government's abolition of that incentive in, in the UK was one of the worst things they did. Yeah. Well, it's what I had when I was at university, and um, yeah. I don't know about you, John, but there was certainly far more support available then, and it meant you ended up with northern people at University College London and vice versa. Yeah, exactly. And it seems that you've got far less of that movement going on now. Exactly. Um, we'll move on now to the, the secondary education area, because the, there are statistics in there which, again, you've pulled out in your very useful brief, that, um, that point out some of the, the large disparities between countries. Would you like to go over some of those with us? Well, in terms of the disparities between uh, countries, I've, I covered the earnings disparity situation. I also covered the issue of higher education outcomes, but there's some other interesting statistics as well, and that is the amount of compulsory instruction time. So what you've got in primary is that the average is 799 hours per year teaching and with students in lower secondary receiving 116 hours more. Now the interesting thing 
about that. And if you have a look, for example, with Hungary, where students have the lowest number of hours in compulsory instruction, with young people in Australia the highest, that actually there isn't too much correlation between the amount of time you spend in classroom and whether or not you're considered on the Programme for International Student Assessment Test, as it were, whether you're considered to be a high-performing country. It's not so much the amount of time you spend in school, it's the quality of the teaching that matters. And it's also the nature of instruction and whether or not, as a teacher, you're able to actually get into a genuine, iterative, dialogic, whatever technical phrase you want to use, relationship so that kids are learning. Whether the optimum conditions are there for learning and the teachers feel confident that they can actually teach without any external pressures preventing them teaching. So the critical issue is not so much the instruction time, which many countries are beginning to think ought to be increased, it's actually the quality of teaching stupid. So what assists with that, do you think? Well, I think what assists with that is for countries to have decent teacher policies and they should work them out with individual countries, uh, individual teacher unions and the teaching profession. And a, and a decent teacher policy is about genuine professional development in the widest sense, starting from initial teacher education with teacher involvement in their own professional development. And I don't just mean teacher learning, I mean actually being engaged in quality of your own learning, supporting other teachers in their learning, but also crucially influencing policy on what happens to the environment in which you work, showing teacher leadership, it were, as, it, as it were, right the way through your professional life. And I think that's, that's really important. So countries with really decent teacher policies that have been worked out with their teaching professions and teacher unions are the ones that succeed. And the classic ones are there, actually. I mean, there is an extraordinarily high-performing provinces in Canada, for example. Some of the Nordic countries have got good teacher policies, like Finland, but there in the Far East you've got Singapore, for example, good teacher policies there, and some of the states in Australia. Actually, New Zealand has, has, has got a good reputation for decent teacher policies as well. So, I mean, there's some, there's some countries that are showing the way and if you talk to any teacher unions, they'll certainly say there's some problems with it. But broadly, on all the evidence, you can see that where you have worked out with your teaching profession how to support teachers in the classroom over the lives of teachers in their professional lives, as it were, professional careers, then that works in terms of children's learning. That's a, a powerful analysis, John. We're going to round off with, with a fourth topic here, which is really a broad area, but I'd just like some comment on the primary, pre-primary area, because there are some interesting statistics coming up in both those places, and I'm interested in the transition between different sectors as well, because there's particularly interesting things arriving there, and there is more work going on in that ECE early childhood area, mm. which is looking at developing more information so that we can have some, some better ideas about how that transition works. Yes, you've got some real nuggets in there in the education at a glance. I mean, one of them interestingly, is that it's the European Union countries which commit themselves to publicly provided pre-primary education. And actually, it is around about 10% more early education institutions are in the public sector than they are outside the European Union. So 86% of four-year-olds are educated in publicly provided pre-primary education. That's, that's, that's an important one, actually, because by and large, it's the EU countries that are doing well when it comes to later outcomes for students in primary and in lower and upper secondary. Uh, the other thing, and I think it is a very, very important sign, as it were, an indicator 
And that is, what is absolutely clear is that the children of refugees and immigrants who come to uh, OECD countries, those that receive pre-primary education perform, in a sense, if you want to use that terrible word, far, far better than students who don't. The kids who actually go to uh, nursery forward slash uh, pre-primary four-year-old education, who might have come from some really damaged backgrounds, that gets wiped away in terms of their learning outcomes if they go to pre-primary education. And as an indicator of how important pre-primary education is, I couldn't find a better indicator than that. And what it, what it says, basically, that indicator is a proxy for all the other indicators about the importance of education is, as the OECD say, the public benefits of education outweigh the costs. You couldn't have a better sign than that. So is there anything you'd like to round off for us with, John, given that you've covered an awful lot of ground here? Um, It is a report which does throw up a number of interesting things that you've highlighted. We can see from it, as you pointed out, in a number of ways, the way that Education International has been influential around the policy areas in in many of these spaces. Do you want to just round us off with a comment on that? Yes. I mean, I don't think there's any substitute for... uh for countries who want their education systems to work for everyone and to have high outcomes for all children and young people irrespective of their backgrounds there's no substitute for having proper dialogue with the teaching profession which is where the annual international summits of the teaching profession are so important and I hope they continue but there is something else that's really really important and that is There's a finding in there which is related to a previous PISA report and some of the TALIS evidence, the Teaching and Learning International study, which the OECD do, which show that where collaboration takes place between principals and teachers on how their schools effectively work, then you are likely to get better outcomes. Collaboration is far better than top-down imposition in terms of leadership in schools. I think as a final thought, that's perfect. Thank you very much, John Banks. This was Ed Voices from Education International in Brussels on the web at ei-ie.org.